Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Settle down. Stephen Quinn, especially you, settle down. Oh, just being in here brings back days of when I was in school and being in the gymnasium and I was the last one picked. Well, not tonight. I am the first one to speak, so I'm truly excited. Uh, good evening, everyone. My name is Fred Lee. I am the uh, Director of Alumni Engagement uh, with Alumni UBC. It is absolutely my pleasure to welcome all of you to tonight's uh, UBC Dialogues event. Uh, please allow me to uh, start off by acknowledging that we are gathered today on the traditional territory of the Musqueam, tsleil and Squamish peoples. Now, I invite all of you to join me in thanking our presenting sponsor, Scotiabank, and our media and broadcast sponsor, CBC, for their tremendous ongoing support of these very important discussions in the community. And a special thank you to our webcast partner, the Irving K. Barber Learning Center. So, ladies and gentlemen, please join me in thanking all of our sponsors. It is now my pleasure to introduce Scotiabank's Angie Vieira, branch manager of the New False Creek branch, I'm presuming right here in this beautiful neighborhood, who, as our presenting sponsor, will introduce tonight's moderator. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming Angie Vieira. Thanks, Fred, and good evening, everyone. I'm thrilled to be here tonight and to welcome you all to the UBC Dialogues. Scotiabank is committed to supporting the communities in which we live and work. And like UBC Dialogues, we believe that the different ideas and perspectives contribute to a strong and healthy society, one that fosters an inclusive culture and celebrates talent and diversity. And so we're proud to be partnering, partnering with our friends at Alumni UBC on this fantastic series of events. Tonight, we're in for a real treat, as we'll hear from another outstanding lineup of panelists, and it's now my pleasure to welcome our moderator for the evening. Stephen Quinn studied broadcast journalism at BCIT and first started with CBC Radio as a reporter in 2000. He has guest hosted several CBC shows, news specials, and series on the media for network radio. He is a multiple RTNDA award winner and is the creator and host of the very popular Quinn's Quiz on CBC Radio 1. Fresh from an eight-year stint as CBC's provocative civic affairs reporter, Stephen now hosts CBC Radio 1's weekday afternoon show on the coast, where he delivers a daily dose of must-listen-to radio through news, reviews, and interviews that keep Vancouverites informed on local issues, sports, weather, and entertainment. To guide us along in tonight's dialogue, please join me in a warm welcome for our moderator, Stephen Quinn. There's no sports on the show anymore, <laughs> by the way. It's an old intro. Thank you so much for having me this evening. It's a great, uh, it's a tremendous honor to uh, be involved with UBC in this way, with the Alumni Association, uh, with Fred Lee, who hangs over my desk and says, hey, how'd you like to do this thing? Uh, but it really is always a, a very distinct pleasure. And um, they're so beautifully organized. The conversations are always uh, fascinating. Um, and uh, we were saying earlier on that it's nice to be able to have an in-depth conversation, one that doesn't expire within six or eight minutes as it, as it often does on the radio. So uh, very glad to, to be here. Um, and thank you, Angie. And uh, as a parent who has uh, three children, 
uh, in this city. Uh, I am very much looking forward to hearing what all of you have to say tonight because goodness knows we all need some help. Um, so tonight's discussion is exactly that question. Can we raise children in Vancouver? And Vancouver has developed a reputation, rightly or wrongly, as a place where it's difficult to raise kids, um, probably because of the high cost of housing, uh, the high cost of childcare, the availability of childcare. Uh, I tell an anecdote, my, my uh, eldest, my daughter, who is now 15, uh, by the time we found a daycare spot for her at the first daycare um, that was acceptable, um, she could pick up the phone and say, no thank you, I no longer require a daycare space. Um, and we put her name in prenatally. So um, we eventually did manage a way, though, and, for, and did find a, a daycare space, but we know how difficult it is for everybody out there. Um, you make a lot of sacrifices as a parent living in the city. You make a lot of sacrifices living in the city. Um, earning, as many people do, a, you know, a, a moderate income. What would be a decent income in other cities uh, doesn't tend to go as far here. And you end up doing that juggle between, you know, does one of us not go back to work? Because by the time I pay for childcare for, you know, well, you know, God forbid, two in childcare at the same time, um, you're wondering whether it's actually still worth it to go to work. Is are, are you you know are you losing money and at the same time handing your kids over to somebody else and you know not advancing your career? Um, so all of these challenges um, are part of it. We also have the risks that are associated with substandard uh, childcare that's out there, and uh, certainly anybody who's a parent has probably had that look of desperation in their eyes when they need to find something when they're going back to work. And um, it's not always easy. And I remember touring some places with my kids to think, no, I don't think I'm going to be leaving my child here. Um, and some of those were institutional and licensed as well. So it's, uh, it's not just home care places. Anyhow, we've got four terrific panelists who tonight uh, will be far more articulate than I'm being right now. Uh, they'll help us navigate through those issues and a whole lot more and all of the challenges that are involved in raising children in Vancouver. I will welcome them now to the stage. And as the four of you get comfortable, I will introduce you. So please, you, you may all come up at once. And then you can just raise your hand to identify yourself when I say your name. And then everybody will be on the same page. Does that sound good? Here we go. Uh, UBC alumnus Linnell Anderson has 30 years of experience as a professional accountant in the voluntary, public, private, and academic sectors. Her research and advocacy uh, activities focus on public policies that advance the rights of children and women and families, especially with respect to childcare services. Um, Linnell is a respected Canadian authority on childcare, currently provides research and strategic leadership to the campaign advancing $10 a day childcare for British Columbia. So please welcome Linnell Anderson. Chantal Kirsch, or Krish rather, I'm sorry, is the Director of Communications and Advocacy for the YWCA Metro Vancouver. Her work focuses on raising awareness and collaborating across sectors to address systemic gaps and barriers that come when it comes to achieving gender equality. Now these issues include things like universal childcare, addressing the sexualization of women and girls, ending violence against women, and encouraging civic participation among youth. And her inclusive uh, approach to stakeholder engagement has resulted in uh, tangible policy change at the local and provincial and federal levels. Uh, please welcome Chantal Krish. 
Mary Claire Zach is the Managing Director of Social Policy and Projects for the City of Vancouver, where her primary goal is to implement the city's vision of a healthy city for all. Uh, she's got three decades of experience in the public service. She has experience at all three levels of government and in the nonprofit sector as well. Her work has included a focus on equity in fields like immigration and multiculturalism and anti-racism and women and persons with disabilities and low-income communities and reconciliation with Aboriginal communities. Uh, and please welcome Mary Claire. And finally, UBC alumnus Dr. Martin Goon is an assistant professor at the Human Early Learning Partnership at UBC's School of Population and Public Health. He is the national research lead of the Forum on Early Childhood Development Monitoring, and he's also a member of the Canadian Council on Social Determinants of Health. Uh, his interdisciplinary applied research focuses on social, cultural, uh, demographic, and socioeconomic determinants of children's and adolescents' developmental health, their well-being, and their educational trajectories. So please welcome Dr. Martin Goon. Just a couple of comments before we continue. We'll get to the questions and the answers in just a moment. Um, the format of this dialogues event, I'll be asking our panelists a number of questions uh, over the next 30 or so minutes uh, before we turn the floor over to you, to the wonderful app as well. I have the controls. Um, I will turn it over to you, our audience, for a question and answer period. If you're not using the app and you'd still like to answer a question, uh, we'll have somebody on the floor with a microphone and you can just hoot them over and uh, we'll get your question in as well. Um, my rules for events like this is that please, your, your question must contain a question. <laughs> if I don't hear a question within a reasonable amount of time, it's not going to be good. Um, but, uh, and feel free to uh, input uh, your questions as you hear the discussion on stage as well, if you are using the platform. Um, and if you didn't bring a mod mobile device, as I said, don't worry about it. We'll take questions from the audience. Um, and there will be a volunteer up with a microphone later on. And this evening, we'll finish with a reception so you can continue the conversation individually with our panelists and with each other as well. So let's get to it, shall we? Watch me step away. And I'm still amplified. <laughs> This is like a radio broadcaster's dream, <laughs> just being mic'd all the time. <laughs> Thank you all. It's so good to see you all. Thank you. Um, Martin, I'll begin with you if I can, because I have one big question that I will ask uh, everybody who's, who's with us tonight. Um, and it's, it's the question that's right there. Uh, can we raise children in Vancouver? Um, yeah, thanks uh, for... Um, having me here and great to see the great turnout. So, of course, when I hear the question as a researcher, I uh, immediately go to the evidence. How are we raising children? We've worked with schools and government across uh, BC to look at children's development for the past 15 years. What we're seeing is that children's social emotional development has gotten worse over the past 15 years. The literacy skills have gotten a little better. And of course, what we see in kindergarten is a reflection of the experiences these children have been making during the first years of life. And generally speaking, the evidence says that the early years of life are a sensitive period. Um, the experiences that children have uh, from conception all the way till um, five, um, they are fundamentally important for how our brain develops, how our stress activity uh, develops, uh, our attachment system, our system functioning. So the question is, are we 
uh, can we raise children and how, how are we raising children? Are we providing the best experiences to children as we possibly could? And we also know that um, the realities for young families with children have gotten uh, more difficult over the past generation. Uh, you mentioned a few, uh, access to high quality childcare spaces, living costs, costs for childcare, and a whole range of other barriers, so whether it's um, the, the, the poverty rates um, for um, the inequity we face in our society. So for, you, for me, the question is, could we do better? And what, uh, what does it take, especially if we realize that the early years are uh, a one-time opportunity in lifetime to really set the foundations by providing rich and nurturing experience to young children? Thank you. And Mary Claire, what do you see as the, um, the biggest challenges when it comes to raising children in Vancouver? Well, when I sat down to answer this question over the weekend, I contemplated my own personal experience, which is much like yours. I've got three children as well. My best friend told me, you know, the hardest thing you're going to have to deal with as a parent is finding good childcare. And it was absolutely true. But knowing now the situation's worse, as an employer, I see my staff having uh, two and three different childcare arrangements for their, their children. And I think that is absolutely crazy making. So, and that was, as a, also as a policy person, I was thinking about all the data and the stats and the evidence, and then I was interrupted by a calamity in my kitchen. And so I ran downstairs and my 15-year-old with his five friends tried to make pudding, and then the pudding didn't work out, so they tried to make a cake and the cake flopped. So here's a little example of not following science, not following best practice, a little life lesson here for them. And one of them says to me, Eli's mom, how can they always call you Eli's mom? Yeah. You know, we'll make it up to you. Like maybe next week we try brownies. And I said, no, 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 no. Answer me this question. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to throw this question at these guys and say, you know, can we raise children in Vancouver? And I got some really in-depth responses. 15-year-olds know exactly what's going on. Of course, they know it's high cost of living. Uh, people aren't making enough uh, to afford to live here. That's going to affect them. Uh, people need to leave the city. Um, it's going to affect the diversity of the city. There's not going to be as many children here. Um, so they have a lot of in-depth knowledge and also concern about their own futures. And then I asked them, well, is there anything you could think about doing about that? And they contemplated that a little bit. And they said, no immediate answers. but they said, if you can fix this, it's worth it. And I said, why? And they said, because Vancouver is the best place to grow up. And we have to, we have to, um, so it's worth fighting for, for our children. And some of the things they mentioned were very, very basic. Their friends, the schools, the parks, the nature, like all of the things that, that uh, Andrew Yan from SFU, he always, he talks about the neighborhood, the schools, and the amenities that we have. They're, they're like our silverware right? And don't throw those away. So that gave me a real sense of hope because I was, you know, I, we all need some. The one thing they didn't know much about, though, was childcare. Mm. You know, what can we do about childcare? And so part of my message to them and part of my message to you tonight is that it's going to take a long time. The city of Vancouver, with other levels of government, have plans over the next 10 years for housing and affordable housing. But we could, or government could, tomorrow lower the rates of childcare spaces for parents. And when a parent is paying $1,500 a month and struggling to live here, if they just had to pay, say, $1,000 a month while we get a $10 a plan, uh, a $10 day plan underway, it would make such a relief 
for, that's a thousand parents, that's a thousand children and many more parents across the city. It's the most immediate thing that we could do. So I want us to be thinking about that. Housing is important, but childcare could have a real immediate impact. Thank you. And Chantal, when, when you hear that question, what's the first thing that goes through your mind? Because everybody comes at it from a different point of view. Yeah, for sure. So at the YWCA where I'm working, our primary client group are single mothers and their children. And so when I hear the question, can we, raise, can we afford to raise children in Vancouver? I mean, for middle-income families, it's inaccessible. For single mothers and their children who are living in poverty, it's completely unattainable. So I think we need to also acknowledge, and, I, and a lot of work has been done you know, in this, across this panel and in the city around income inequality and what the implications of that actually mean to us as a society. It, it directly impacts our social cohesion on so many levels. So for single mothers, you know, I was looking through um, some stories from single moms that I've talked to over the years, and one of them was telling me that you know she was able to go into one of our childcare facilities, which is called Emma's, and it's for teen mothers, so they can go finish high school while they have their children cared for by YWCA childcare, as well as learn about parenting and nutrition and budgeting and all these things that go along with being a parent. And she said, you know, if she didn't have the opportunity to actually participate in this program and have access to free childcare, she would be probably homeless with her child. So, you know, it's, it's kind of like we do need to stop and think about who's missing from these conversations and also the life that you can change by just actually instituting a quick fix as well as a systematic approach. And, and it's never lost on me that when, when we convene these sorts of things often, and, and this is no offense intended to anybody, but we, the people we have on stage do come from a certain socioeconomic level and aren't actually living much of what your own clients are living, and I'm acutely conscious of that. Um, Linnell, where do you come at the, or how do you come at this question? Can we raise children yeah, in Vancouver? Children here. And the answer, I think, is yes, and it's a big yes, but. Um, and we know it's happening. We have people in the audience that, that are raising children. We have people on the panel that are raising children in Vancouver. Uh, the but is that it is um, way more difficult, it's way more expensive, and it's way more stressful for families than it was a generation ago. Martin alluded to the difference generationally and the cost of, of having children now. Uh, it's also way more uh, difficult and stressful and costly than it is in any other advanced country. I, it's still a surprise for people to learn that Canada ranks last in terms of its support for families with young children. We don't rank last when it comes to public education. We're in the top five. We don't rank last when it comes to how we support older generations with health care and old age pensions. We're in the top five or ten consistently there. But we are last in terms of how we support families with young children. And we're last primarily around childcare and our very weak investment in childcare. And, and we're even bumped up. BC is lower than the Canadian average because we're all bumped up by Quebec's investment. Mm. So it, we, it's, it's a but, a yes but answer. And the good news is that finally today, uh, today right now, we're actually able to, um, we're on the point, we're on the, on the cusp of making a change, and it's a change that um, Mary Claire alluded to, and that is our ability to actually implement a $10 a day plan in BC. We have the public support and the political support to now make that a reality, and I'm really looking forward to the positive pressure that we all need to place on government to make sure it happens. 
And I do want to talk more about that, but I want to get through just sort of a, I'd like to go into your own areas of expertise before we, before we do that, um, just to flesh things out a little bit. Uh, Martin, you focus on um, adolescent development, in particular on children's adolescent development and their health and their, their well-being, and as I said off the top, their educational trajectory. Um, what is the thing, what are the things that we can do to offer all kids um, a fair and, and healthy start? Well, if I knew uh, exactly in terms of how to make it a reality, it's, 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 a, it's a really fascinating question because in principle we know the ingredients. Uh, yeah. We know that children need uh, a loving, caring um, caregiver, uh, that they need the communication, the attendance to their emotional, social needs, they need time to explore, to play, they need healthy nutrition, they need good sleep. So we, we know in principle mm -hmm. uh, what some of the ingredients are in terms of, we, at the same, uh, also at the community level, we need access to green spaces or playgrounds. Uh, the neighborhoods have to be safe. We need access to healthcare service and so forth. So we, again, we know the ingredients, and of course, for a lot of people, these are in place in Canadian society. And also, if you look internationally, there are lots of fabulous examples of how we provide uh, great uh, social context for raising uh, um, uh, children. The question is, why are they not happening in some contexts? And what are the, the, the comp competing interests and other priorities? So why is so much space dedicated to uh, traffic? Why is so much uh, emphasis being put on boosting the GDP by real estate? Why, so why, why does the sugar industry get away with not putting you know, labels on food sinks? And so you can go through an entire list of competing interests. And the question is, how do we collectively negotiate that space? So how do we set our priorities? And I think we have to start with awareness. If we go back to what I said about the sensitive periods, if you realize what's going on in the brain or the stress reactivity system, the attachment system during the first years of life, it's not just that it's important during that time, but they set the stage for everything coming after. So I'll give you one example, the, the way you experience stress or chronic stress early on, and that's strongly correlated with living in poverty and having not access to good experiences, um, your stress reactivity system gets conditioned to malfunction. You overreact or you don't react at all. And this has implications for your long, uh, lifelong health. So we see consequences of uh, stressful childhoods all the way into adulthood and into old age in terms of higher risk for obesity, higher risk for uh, diabetes, higher risk for cardiovascular disease, higher risk for degenerative diseases in old age, higher risk for not graduating high school, all having to do with uh, some of the foundations not being set up uh, during the early childhood period. That's not to say that the later years are not important, they're very right. important as well, but whatever you miss as an opportunity early on uh, is very, very hard to make up. Um, so that's why they say the biggest return of investment is if you invest in rich experiences during the early years because it will last a lifetime. And Mary Claire, when you hear that, what do you think, where do you think the city can step in uh, when it comes to that? Because we, you know, we have Vancouver constantly rated as we're the most livable city in the world and we also know that we're one of the most unaffordable cities right. in the world right. when you compare incomes to the, yeah. the cost of living. Yeah. But, but when, when you hear, you know, firsthand all of those things that can benefit a child in the early years, T tell me what the, the city does to that end. 
Well, I guess just to speak to some of the surveys that you're speaking about, it all depends on what they're measuring, right? And um, I think one of the things that the city has done that I've been really involved in is that it's what's called our Healthy City Strategy. It is based on social determinants of health. So it's basically asking the question, what does it take everybody, because there's equity to this, to flourish in Vancouver? So um, a good start in life is a key platform for that, but it considers things like food and housing and income and you know, connections with friends and, and a built environment and all those kinds of things. The challenge we have at the city, uh, we have lots of opportunities to make that happen, but we can't do it on our own. And um, this was never meant to be something we would do on our own. We need other levels of government. And so to what Lynn said, we have an opportunity right now uh, to work in a much more partnership um, approach uh, to tackle some of these issues. And we're really looking forward to that. I keep hearing that, but I don't see evidence of it. I don't see, uh, I hear lots of words. I hear about commitments when it comes yep. to spending. I don't, uh, I don't see a, a plan or a map or the foundation of anything yet. Yeah, and we don't either, but we are having conversations. So I'm still feeling hopeful, at least having the conversations, seeing that they're at the table. And what we need to be doing is collectively impressing upon our elected officials, senior orders of government, how important this is. It really, really is important. But for the city's perspective of also, um, I think the, the focus on neighborhoods is really, really important, especially when you talk about families, mm -hmm. all right? Um, so we can talk about the city as a whole, which is important, but children live in neighborhoods, families live in neighborhoods. And so one of the things that we're grappling with, I think, is this whole notion of development taking place in certain nodes of the city. Where that takes place and where we have um, more affordable, smaller, uh, because we know that people are willing to, to live in smaller units and such. We may not have the capacity at the school to take the children. Um, so there needs to be a real coordination at the local mm. level with school board, with our partners, uh, at the NGOs, etc., to really put all those amenities together. We do have neighborhoods, though, that have been essentially hollowed out of children in this in this city. I was with my kids the other day, we were walking through Strathcona, well not the other day, a few weeks ago, and they heard all of this noise and commotion and screaming and yelling, and they said, my God, is somebody being murdered? And I said, no, that's children playing <laughs> without their parents. And yeah. we came up the lane, and sure enough, there was, it was, it was like I was back in 1972. It was a gang of kids running up the lane, yeah. you know, just not getting quite hit by cars, um, and playing hide-and-seek. And I don't recall the last time I've seen that in the city yeah. without a parent in sight. Yeah. It was amazing. Yeah. Um, Chantel, what you do, I can't, you know, we talk about all of these struggles. We talk about what it's like to raise a family in this city. Um, I can't imagine trying to do it as a single person. I can't imagine trying to do it as a single mother. Um, let me be positive for a second. What, what works when it comes to that? Is there something that works? Well, for one thing, single parents are incredibly resilient and they have, they self-organize and so they find ways to make things work, not unlike you know, what we were talking about with finding childcare arrangements, but so we run um, services like single mother support groups 
with childcare, you know, with housing and with employment services. And these are sort of the pillars of our service delivery because one on its own isn't enough. Mm -hmm. Even childcare, I mean, it will make a huge, huge impact for a lot of these families. But, you know, then thinking about employment outcomes and being able to actually move towards economic independence. Like right now, because childcare is just unaffordable and attainable, a lot of single parents need to stay at home, be on income assistance, and this is how they continue to be stuck in this cycle of poverty. So once they, they can break free from that and are given an opportunity to access the labor market and access education. And I'll give you an example. So the provincial government two years ago came out with something called the Single Parents Employment Initiative. And it was a cross um, inter-ministry program between three different ministries and provincial government where they created a program where single parents, and particularly single mothers, which could access the labor force and access specific education um, paths. Mm -hmm. And they would cover childcare, transportation, and the cost of their education and for one year after as well, the transportation. And so, and you know, like this is the kind of systematic response. So it's taking away barriers like transportation and childcare, giving them access to education. And this is how you actually build a future for, some, for a family. So it requires collaboration and coordination across, you know, various agency and sectors. Um, but, you know, I would never doubt the resiliency of a single mother to actually get stuff done. It's just a matter of, is, are they dealing with basic needs, food and shelter, or are they able to actually think more long-term and create the basis for you know, a better life for themselves and their children? Linnell, why is support for young families the last thing on the list? I mean, why is there not, not only more and more political will, but where's the political, the, the political action that comes to pressure governments to do something about that? Yeah, I think there's, there's a few reasons for that. I think a couple that I mentioned off the bat. First of all, the reality is that culturally in Canada, generally, outside of Quebec, uh, we still see very young children as a private family responsibility. I'll give you an example of that. If you think of uh, a mom taking her five-year-old to kindergarten and then heading off for a jog afterwards. So what do we think of that mom? Right away, if we don't even think about it, probably. But if we did, we would think, "Oh, that's great. She's maintaining her health, enjoying a jog. That's wonderful, right?" And her, and her child is in kindergarten and having a great time and learning and so on. But if you had that same mom with a four-year-old who took that child to daycare, childcare, and then went off on a run, you would say, "What a terrible mother. She's not." She's leaving her child. Maybe you wouldn't say that. I wouldn't say that. But socially, mm. we, culturally, we have not yet come to actually understand, appreciate, and value early childhood education and care the same way we value public education. And we see young children as a private responsibility. That's number one. Number two, the challenge is that we, the systems we do have in place were built a generation ago. And they were built back in a time when we had a much stronger value around having universal public services like public education, like public health care. Um, and so we are trying to introduce, because the circumstances have changed and we need early childhood education and care now, um, but we're trying to introduce that against a backdrop of uh, clamping down on, uh, um, you know, in, in expanding public services or building public services. Yeah. Now, I think that's changing because we've realized 
the, what's happened when we haven't supported public services. And all of the, the reason we're here talking tonight is because of the realities of not having good public support for families with young children. So I think the fact that we're here tonight and having the conversation, I think the tide is turning. And I think, as I mentioned, the last election in BC was an example of that. And there's real opportunities to move forward here. But it's the values and the economics that have held us back so far. Um, it is my nature to only look at the bad side of things. And <laughs> when I hear $10 a day daycare, um, I, before the election, was asking the question that Andrew Weaver is asking now, why not 15, why not 20, why not 25? Daycare is anywhere from 50 to $70 a day right now. If you, I mean, that's, you know, that's a pretty reasonable rate that most parents would be willing to pay if they could find a place. Where does this $10 number come from? Um, Mary Claire, I'll go to you first with this. Where does this $10 a day number come from, other than it's where it started in Quebec? What, what's that built on? Well, I think what it's built on is built on, a, a, first of all, a system of universality, knowing that that's something that most people could afford. And the $10 a day plan, the $10 is only one part of that plan. And I right. think that's something that people, it's really, really important to understand. One of the key elements of the plan that I think will help address some of this, because it is stigma um, mm -hmm. that is being raised here around uh, early childhood development, right? We just assume parents should just pick up their bootstraps, which is, I really like the title of this, Can We Raise Children in Vancouver? Because it is about the we, so I appreciate mm -hmm. that. Um, but one of the things that might address that is looking at early childhood education as part of the education system. Because right now, it's a hodgepodge of services. It's yes. not connected. And it would really, really help to, to, to create that system of care for early learning and care. And the second thing I want to say about that is I think there's an opportunity for us to be working with the schools. We have three schools right now that we're actually building uh, child care zero to four right into the school as part of a seismic upgrade. And that's a wonderful opportunity to have a one-stop shop for families transition into, into kindergarten, all of those things that um, are important. Um, then Al? Go ahead. Yeah, I, thank you. Um, just to build on that, I, I was involved in costing the $10 a day plan. I led the costing of the plan, and I modeled the $10. And so I really appreciate you asking that question because I think it's really important to clarify and explain uh, what's behind the model. The model uh, looked at what is internationally, what is the parental contribution to childcare typically in effective systems? Mm -hmm. And then we looked at a way of, okay, let's apply that to our model that we've built. And as Mary Claire says, the $10 a day plan, that's like the iceberg. That's what we see on top of the water. Underneath that is a complete policy framework and a 10-year implementation plan that is fully costed with all of associated benefits. So we are ready to rock and roll on it. But the, the model is actually showing a way of actually capturing the average parental contribution that we see internationally in effective systems, and it's applying it in a way that we do in other services, which I mentioned, public education. Mm -hmm. We don't say, well, parents could afford to pay $50 a day for school, so why aren't they paying for grade two? No, we somehow all-day kindergarten turned into a reality and nobody blinked. And all of the programs, the wonderful programs that have been introduced over the last 10 years for parents who are at home, like Strong Start and the Family Resource Programs, all of those are free. Um, but all of a sudden, when we're talking about supporting primarily mums in the workforce, then we get ourselves in a bit of a knot about how much parents should be paying. Right. So. Martin would like to jump in here. Yeah, I think it's a, um, 
um, I think it's an um, artificial differentiation between child care and, let's say, elementary school. I mean, historically, that's the way it has functioned. You know, the, in uh, kindergarten or in grade one, you go to school, you don't pay anything for it. Right. Uh, at least in this society and a lot of other societies, uh, unless you send them to certain types of schools. Then you go to, uh, to a university or college or to other types of training. Uh, I'm from Germany. For the longest time, that has been free. Uh, whereas in a lot of other countries, it can be uh, extremely uh, uh, expensive. Healthcare, uh, childcare, all, all I'm saying is, it's not as if these things are now cheaper or more expensive. Of course, mm -hmm. high quality childcare costs a lot of money because you have to, it's about where we do we channel resources and do we put the onus on families or do we distribute across uh, society? And so I, there's a lot to the, the argument in terms of all the evidence. It points in the direction that the, the biggest return of investment at both at an economic level, also at a societal level, we get is if we provide a good platform during the early years so that, so don't think of education as something starting in grade one because there's nothing apart from a social contract, construction that says that. Mm -hmm. Why don't we think of a system that goes all the way from conception mm -hmm. in terms of supporting families with young children, especially during the years where we know they benefit the most and we'll, we'll reap the benefits of that for, um, for generations uh, to come. So I think we have to have um, discussion around priority setting, which we, we said, said earlier, and where is the money currently going? Because there's a lot of money going into other places. It's not as if we don't have money in our society, whether it's going into healthcare or uh, real estate or into private pockets. Um, there's that, there's the decisions that we decide to make. Forgive me, I'm just gonna take the tablet off here because we're gonna probably get to some questions from the audience very shortly. Um, I just want to ask you all one more thing before we do that, which is, uh, Mary Claire, you pointed out the, the important part of this, which is the we part of the question. Mm -hmm. The other part of this is in Vancouver. Is Vancouver any different from anywhere else? Oh, when, we're special. When we talk, well, <laughs> I know, we're, we're all special snowflakes <laughs> in, the, in the city of Vancouver, but, but is, I, I lived here, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. all of my adult life, yeah. so I don't know what it's, what it's like to try to raise kids somewhere else. Well, I think from a, let's take it from a, you know, an affordable, a childcare perspective, we know that the costs of childcare are probably um, a little uh, less expensive than, say, the city of Toronto, but they're among the highest across the country. The challenge we have here in, in BC generally is that it's, it's access to care. So only about 20% mm -hmm. of families who need childcare, licensed childcare, actually get it in British Columbia. In Vancouver, though, it's 32%. And I, and I know why it's 32%. It's because the city has stepped in. Hmm. Um, and the city has actually facilitated or enabled 65% of the licensed uh, group childcare spaces in the city. Um, well, yeah, so? for sure. I, mean, I think Vancouver, um, the reputation of it being unaffordable is true in so many ways. Like I was, we were just talking about how in my friends group, I've seen, I would say 80% of them. So this is about eight couples leave Vancouver, either leave one has moved to a suburb, but the rest of them have actually left Vancouver, one's moved to Victoria, and the rest have left the, the province completely. So, and when you look at this, and some of them had that first apartment that they were, were going to turn into, you know, their starter home, but eventually they started thinking about, well, I actually can't envision a life here with two kids. It's just totally impossible. 
Um, my sister lives in Toronto, and she has six-month-old twins and a two-and-a-half-year-old, so oh she is full-on right now. And you know, if it wasn't for my parents, like she's doing really well, of course. But it's very challenging there too. But what Mary Claire was saying is around access, a number of spaces. You know, she was at least able to get a childcare space at a facility in walking distance from her house. And here, I mean, the idea of getting something like that is, yeah. is really, is, yeah, it's very hard. So it's Martin, pretty unique. Pardon me, sorry. Martin, in, in what you've seen, I mean, uh, internationally, is, is it a particular challenge or is it a challenge that's unique to Vancouver? Well, certainly internationally, we've seen a complete change in terms of the uh, gender division of labor. So that's been um, maybe one of the greatest societal changes in terms of uh, women joining the labor force in quite different ways than they used a generation or two ago. I'm not speaking about all of history. Mm. I'm, I'm also paid work, you know, and, the, uh, and some of the dynamics that come with it. Um, in terms of childcare, the rates differ greatly. I mean, as Linnell said earlier, the, you look at the international rankings comparisons, Canada doesn't do so, so, so well. But I think, again, it's, it's also a bigger question in terms of priorities. Some countries, the Scandinavian Nordic countries, they basically eliminate child poverty. Um, by providing either by either lowering costs not just for childcare but for also for other fundamental mm -hmm. services or by uh, creating benefits. So, um, so yes, there's there's examples of countries that have similar types of resources in principle, and we're all humans. <laughs> um, how how do they do it, and why uh, do we do it a little differently? And I think again, it comes down to priorities and the value discussion, but certainly. There are other places where they manage to solve that issue. I do want to get to some questions from the audience now. I've got the, um, the platform up. And again, if you have a question and you didn't bring a, a device, you didn't bring a phone or something, so you didn't get a question to go through the interwebs over here, um, just raise your hand and someone with a microphone will come around and, and uh, take your question. Uh, but we do have some good ones right off the top here. Um, and uh, I guess this one can go to Mary Claire first. Which areas uh, of the city are doing better than others? And what are some of the reasons for that? Would that be in relation to childcare or relation to? I think to just when it comes to raising children generally, the, all of the elements that are in place when it comes to that. I would say across the city, there's a significant shortage of childcare. That's, yeah. that's, that's not a question. There are some areas where it might be a little better. So in the downtown, it's related to development. Where we have development, the city has an opportunity to extract an amenity from the developer. And childcare is one of those things we can ask the developer to put into mm -hmm. that amenity. Where we don't have development in, in places like um, the downtown east side, for example, there's less development. That's where we have uh, sometimes more need for certain kinds of services and amenity, but we don't have the development to, to make that happen. And so that's where we need that equalizer across the city. We need to be able to say that children all across the uh, different neighborhoods need to have a certain um, sort of quota or number of, of amenities for the family so that they can, you know, be raised there in a good way. But we, again, we need the, the partnership with other levels of government and, right. and community to make that happen. Do we tend to gravitate toward the downtown east side as an example when you can look at, you know, basements across the city where single moms are, you know, raising their, you know, raising their children in not the best of conditions? Yeah, for yeah. sure. And also, 
in many ways, the downtown east side is a thriving community, so I wouldn't underestimate you know, the, the community oh, exactly. resources that exist there. I mean, we just, in a partnership with the city, opened affordable housing for single moms over the new library. So I know that there's developments that are being looked at and innovative ways to try and expand, but absolutely, you're right. You know, we look at, we're, we operate in Surrey as well, and when we went into that community, it was for housing and employment services, and of course, childcare came up as a huge issue. Um, so certainly it is something that, you know, you need to look at sort of cluster of services and where do people get pushed out because of affordability and Surrey, Coquitlam, these are two key areas. Mm -hmm. So for organizations like ours and many others, you know, we look at what's the viability of moving into these areas, but it's not easy and we do have to raise capital for those kinds of projects too. So of course it's complex. Hmm. Um, Linnell, I want this next question to go to you because uh, uh, I was going to ask it, but somebody's uh, taken the heat off me now. <laughs> Where do you propose money be taken from to support your $10 a day daycare plan? Well, fortunately, we have a surplus to work with, number one. Um, so there's the, the plan starts with... We're going to do a lot with that surplus. Boy, it's going to like... It's well, it's available. It's yes. there. Right? We've, we've made choices. We've managed to, to have a budget update that shows spending of you know, significant increases. So it's, it's a question of priorities, as, as Martin would say, but the, the money is there. It's available in surplus for the next few years. We've also shown in our economic analyses that there are immediate returns to the economy in, an, in terms of increased taxes that families pay, in terms of job generation and GDP. So the investment is, it returns very quickly to the economy. Um, and the, the question about where, can the, where will the money come from um, is there's so many options, including um, a more progressive tax system than we have right now. Um, because if that's what's important to us, to invest in families, uh, then we should be doing that. And I just want to add that, you know, we are focused here tonight on Vancouver, understandably. Mm -hmm. uh, it's an extreme example of a broader reality, which is provincial and to some extent, you know, national. Um, so this, this issue of, of affording a family and um, investing in families is broader than Vancouver. Right. You know, I mean, and, and I think about this, and I'm not being disparaging at all of the idea of $10 a day daycare. It's, you know, it, it would be amazing, even though the, the door is closed for me now. Thank you very much. No, but, um, but I just, when, when I think of the, the, the scale of that, and as you say, over a 10-year period, I look up this mountain of, oh, my God, can this actually be done? Um, because I know what happens now, as I said, when people are willing to spend 70 or $80 a day on childcare, they can't find any. So what kind of infrastructure is going to have to be built to accommodate everybody who can suddenly make the choice to you know, put their children in care a couple of days a week so they can get back into the workforce? A lot. Yeah. A lot of spaces, right? So we have a shortage of about 17,000 in Vancouver. And in, so, in, sorry, in Vancouver alone? Yes, right. So we are, you know, this is, this is years of underinvestment. And so we're needing to play catch up in a, in a significant, significant way. So the, the plan has to have um, a two-pronged approach. One is, as I said, we can address affordability for many families immediately by at least reducing uh, the cost of childcare. In the meantime, it's working with senior government, local government, um, and putting a plan in place about mm. how are we going to, to roll this out. We do have opportunities with seismic upgrades at school. Let's public land. Let's make good use of it. 
and there's other opportunities as well. So we're, we're sleeves are rolled up. Yeah. Let's go. Because yeah, I look at it and I just yeah. think, no, that can't be done. But then, yeah. Yeah. that's my nature. Over we have time. schools. Oh. We have schools for every child in the province. But you're right about the perception yes. of, of a younger yes. child being a per, yeah. being a private personal responsibility. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know how we got there, but that's where we are. That's how do you change that that mindset? You encourage women to get back into the workforce, number one. I mean, the cost of childcare is a huge decision-making factor for women, mothers to re-enter the workforce when they, when they have children. And the barriers only become higher as their family grows. So if you make it easier and you have more economic opportunity, like in Quebec, when this, when this program was instituted, 70,000 women went back into the workforce. And so you have to change the public perception around gender roles in society. And what Martin was talking about, you know, you see this in terms of labor force participation and mm -hmm. income, income gaps sort of decreasing. All of these sort of social norms that we've had over time about gender roles in society must change and shift and close so that we can ultimately create a system that works for everybody. I, I want to get to some more questions from the audience because I'm, I'm monopolizing things here and I apologize. Um, <laughs> uh, Martin, I'll, I'll send this one to you. What is the research on the benefits of siblings uh, close in age when it comes to child development? A lot of families can only have one, maybe two at the most. That's as many kids as most people can afford. Um, and, and this particular uh, person is worried about the effects of that. I don't think there's a generic response to this. It's not as if having more or less is better or worse in general. You know, it, all these things come, uh, they're part of a completely different experience. So you, of course, if you have siblings, you share experiences that you don't share the same close way if you don't, uh, unless you maybe have very close relatives or neighbors. Uh, but but the is there any measurable impact on a child one way or the other? We, what we do see, and it's uh, coming back to probably being squeezed for resources, if you control for income and access to other resources, if you have more and more and more children, then, and that means that uh, you uh, have to spread the resources thinner and thinner, then you do see an effect in that uh, overall their outcomes seem to be at higher risk for uh, not such positive outcomes. But, mm -hmm. So it becomes a resource issue to some extent. Um, generally speaking, but that's, I don't think that's restricted to siblings, but if you have children in, in, in childcare or playing lots with other children, uh, not surprisingly, their communication skills and their social skills, they're different than the ones who uh, are more often by themselves. Uh, that being said, of course, being on your, on your own and being creative and having quiet space is also important. So I don't want to emphasize a specific finding saying it's better or worse because it comes with such a big ecology around it. But I think the, the resource question comes into play because if, if for large families, of course, with the, in the current system, it's even harder to, to make ends meet. Um, while we've got you talking, Martin, another question just came up to the top, uh, which is specifically addressed to you. Uh, what has been the impact of technology on social and emotional development? Um, well, some of it we don't fully know. There's a few things we do know. Is they have uh, done a study with children uh, looking excessive amounts of um, TV. So, I mean, we're talking in the passive sense, watching TV as opposed to an interactive thing on a screen or so, where the evidence is maybe not quite as advanced. But so if you talk about passive screen consumption, especially when the kids are by themselves, so there's no debriefing after, 
you see that the cognitive development is delayed compared to those who don't, you know, who have other experiences during the same time, because it also becomes an opportunity cost. Mm -hmm. uh, you can't engage in meaningful play, social, uh, socially enriching experience at the same time. You compare the drawings, you compare the language, and uh, it's all, all behind. What we also see is that the, even with, we have done a survey with parents of toddlers, and you see a gra economic gradient already at, for 18-month-old children, 18-month-old children are much more likely to spend an hour or two per day hmm. in front of a screen in a passive uh, way compared to uh, families with higher socioeconomic resources. When you look at uh, outdoor play, play with other kids, the gradient gets reversed. So high, uh, high. So the question again is, what kind of act, to to what activities do families have um, access? And screen time is a very cheap. Uh, form of entertainment. Mm -hmm. So uh, whatever you cannot afford, the one last thing you can always throw at your kid is uh, some type of screen entertainment because it may help mm -hmm. in the moment. But of course, it's not a healthy long-term solution. And I'm not, I don't want to be devil, you know, technology. You know, I hope that comes across. You know, there, there's probably a good use for technology and all kinds of learning experience. But we're talking about excessive passive consumption of uh, uh, screen entertainment, and we know that's negative for development. And I can probably put this question to our other three panelists, uh, uh, beginning with you, Mary Claire, which is, um, what are the reasons behind the limited childcare spaces, and, and what are the, the barriers that are preventing more daycares from being built, being set up? I think the response to that, it hasn't been valued as a priority. Um, we've talked about, um, you know, parents making do on their own and finding their own spaces. So childcare is, is, in, the, is in the private marketplace as well. Um, so it's, um, it's been, say, to the benefit of governments to, in some ways, not having to bear the cost of that. But they're bearing the cost in different ways. So one of the ways to look at those costs is that we spend $16 billion a year on healthcare in the province. And we know that uh, what's a $1.5 billion investment really at the end of the day mm -hmm. when, we, when, you, when we know it could have an impact on that going down. So, um, so yeah, it's just not been made a priority. Um, you know, certainly for the city it, it has been. It's been, you know, housing and childcare. But one thing my group of 15-year-olds didn't understand either was, you know, it's not really the city's mandate. Neither of these things are. I right. mean, it's a purview of senior governments, but we've stepped in as much, and, and we really see this. This has to be a partnership approach. We do have tools. We do have things we can do. We have to do them together. Hmm. What, what is within the city's mandate? And I'm, I, uh, I'm, I get very kind of emotional about this. Facilities like this one, yes, um, and the public pools and community centers and libraries and everything that. I mean, this is not. This is not political at all, but I think the city does an outstanding job when it comes to uh, recreational facilities and access yeah. to outdoors. I don't yeah. know if people agree, but uh, so far my experience has been fantastic. Yeah, and I think it's critical for fountain. Like my experience growing up with my three kids, my community center was my lifeline. Um, and I think those kinds of amenities are often overlooked um, because they are an equity, uh, they're an equity amenity. You know, a lot of the programs are free. Libraries are another one. We have a fantastic network, network of libraries that are available for everybody. 
And those are the kinds of things that the city really can contribute mm -hmm. and that kind of get overlooked uh, when it comes to um, being child friendly. Mm -hmm. So that's the other side of the equation is, is needing to look at these things more holistically. Mm -hmm. Again, looking at the social determinants of health, what do you need in a neighborhood to flourish? And do we know whether, again, and I'm on the socioeconomic diversity thing again, but, but do, because it seems to me that everybody uses the community centers and recreational facilities in the city. It's not just like, you know, when I was growing up and only the poor kids went to the waiting pool. Everybody goes. Yeah. Everybody goes. In fact, they're the primary place for new immigrants and refugees are our community centers, neighborhood houses, and libraries. Lots of questions still about the $10 a day daycare. Um, <laughs> That's great. <laughs> I'm just going to, uh, I'll, I'll throw this one out. I mean, is it, 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 there are two things, obviously, cost and availability. I think about the relationship between the two of them. If you lower the cost, um, you're going to have incredible demand for it. Uh, because people will make that decision about whether to go to work. Is there, is there one thing though that is a priority, or or, or is there, is it the cost of it that's that's preventing this from happening, or is it the availability? I mean, which is the bigger challenge, I guess, keeping the cost down or increasing the availability, knowing that they're completely related. Very well. So we're calling for action on both fronts, yeah. right? So Mary Claire touched on one of the areas of action. So we we need to have action in terms of. Um, lowering the cost to families, so we are calling for in the upcoming provincial budget um, a reduction of parent fees in licensed infant toddler programs across the province, not just in Vancouver, of $500 a month. Mm -hmm. um, and you're right, that will increase demand, it's already there. Um, so at the same time, we need a very aggressive space creation strategy, so we need more spaces. And thirdly, we need to develop the workforce. So we need to uh, value, respect, and um, fairly compensate and educate uh, the workforce. And that also answers a little bit of the previous question, which is why don't we have more spaces? And the answer is because uh, you can't provide quality care without quality staff. And to compensate and retain uh, well-qualified staff would mean we, we have to charge parents very high fees because there's no public funding, almost, almost no. Um, and so that's why it's so hard for people to set up uh, childcare programs because it's all, almost all parent fee paid. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's, that's the story we want to change. Um, here's an interesting question, and I can throw this out to anybody. Are, are people having kids later because of, of these conditions? And Charles <laughs> nodding right away. Uh, and what are the repercussions of that? Yep, Except sure. that you get really old, tired fathers. <laughs> tired. <laughs> so tired. <laughs> no, for sure. You're seeing people have, they're deferring having children, and they're maybe having one child. I thought that question around, you know, the impact on having yeah. a sibling or not, it's really interesting. It's very common to Vancouver and I see this a lot and not just with the clients we work with but actually with my colleagues as well so it's it's a you know middle income problem um, and you know the deferring of having children um, you, what I was talking about earlier with trying to get women back into the workforce I mean this just creates even more challenges in terms of not being able to achieve um, career goals and outcomes that are required for long-term sustainability of a family, right? So taking a step back out of your career later on, it just creates in infinite more problems. So that's one piece. I'm sure there's a lot of research that goes into also um, yeah, actually the being tired piece, you know, mm -hmm. actually being later in life and sort of for a parent who goes from taking care of their children then to maybe taking care of an aging parent as well, and we see all these repercussions on seniors' health. Like, I think all of these pieces are interrelated mm -hmm. too. 
I, I always offer my children the oxygen mask <laughs> analogy that if I don't put it on first, you die. I'm useless unless I get the oxygen first. Martin? It's interesting because if you look internationally at uh, family size, uh, it correlates with uh, GDP or income, but in the way that higher income countries have the smallest family size on average. So I think um, there's, uh, there's other dynamics too. So yes, maybe here people sometimes make the conscious choice to say, oh, let's have a layer to save up or build our career, whatever. Right. But uh, generally speaking, what you see is that uh, a conscious choice to have smaller families or um, have not children or go into the workforce is also related to other factors and they actually correlate with high uh, uh, education and socioeconomic status and opportunity as opposed to the other way around. So mm. um, I'm not sure exactly how to make you know sense of the two, um, but um, if, of course it also comes to do with the question, it has to do with the qu whether you even have the choice or not. You know, mm -hmm. there are of course a lot of um, societies where, um, what's, sorry, what's the English word for not having a child when you have Sex. <laughs> Sorry? Contraception. Contraception. There you oh. go. Um, and there's... Uh, Where are we going now? <laughs> Sorry, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sorry? Oh, we all get digging um, around sex. That's if, you, um, if, you, if, if you want contraception, have three children. <laughs> Uh, where was I? Um, <laughs> uh, so, and, and there's uh, religious and other societal value dynamics playing into this. So, uh, you know, that's that's the stats I know in terms of how the correlation right. plays out. But you're now, you, you're certainly right now. There's a, another dynamic that's maybe more 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 local, uh, local specific. Okay. There's a question here, and I've I just lost it. And it was uh, um, beyond childcare. Let's talk about ways to raise successful children in this city and put the childcare aside for a moment. Linnell, how do we, how do, we do that? <laughs> I'd like your advice. Uh, well, I think the, the here's the thing. Um, what we want and what we know from the evidence is that our children need to be raised in high-quality, nurturing environments, whether they're in the home, in the community, in our parks, in our rec, rec centers, or in, in child care all around. So mm -hmm. our, our responsibility, when we talk about the we in raising uh, children in Vancouver, our responsibility, I think, as a society is to create the best conditions we, ha we can to ensure that's happening. So wherever our children are, they need to be nurtured, stimulated, and, and experiencing good quality environments. Period. Chateau? Hmm. Absolutely. I mean, I think giving young people the opportunity to participate in civic life is also a big part of it later on. And so having ways for young people to volunteer. When you say young people, how young are you talking about? Uh, <laughs> not, not sort of zero to five, but more okay. when they're um, maybe in high school, you know, yeah. maybe in junior high. We run programs for youth transitioning from grade seven to grade eight, and we see that this is a very difficult time for young people. They're navigating through choices relating to sexuality, you know, substance abuse, and peer pressure, and eating disorders, and you know, all these influences that they have that, you know, even I didn't have 20 years ago. Right. So because of technology, so making sure that they have opportunities to not only 
participate in civic life, whether it's volunteering or being part of a community center or learning about local government or the arts, but actually being active contributors and listening to what they have to say, that, that has a very empowering effect on their confidence and their ability to see themselves as active members of society later on. You're going to take credit for all that now, aren't you? <laughs> I, think, I think one of the, just to, just to add to that, is that, you know, I think for some people, it, it, it sounds like really, but engaging young people, and you can, you know, young as two or three years old, in, in, in identifying what would you like to see at the park? Like we're building a park, what would you like to see? That kind of engagement is huge for capacity building. It's huge for helping everyone feel more connected to their neighborhoods. And when we did the Healthy City Strategy, we did a whole consultation across the city. The number one thing that came out, and I thought it was going to be income or, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, and you know, gap between rich and poor, which is a really big problem, is the idea of connection. It's the idea of connection to each other and connecting to, connection to our neighborhoods which if we don't address this problem of affordability and the gap between rich and poor we haven't talked about, but that is really prevalent. Actually, our gap is the widest in the country right now, um, that we'll lose that connectivity. So it is really, really important to start that from a very early age. Which leads us to uh, another brilliant question, uh, which is, uh, are we having this discussion way too late? Um, we heard earlier about people who were leaving the city. Um, uh, my eight-year-old lost three of his best friends this year, one to Nelson, one to Saanich, and one to Ottawa, mm -hmm. as their families moved away. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, you know, well, they're, they're all in the same class. Mm -hmm. And there are people who are abandoning the city and saying, see ya, I'm going to sell my half duplex for $1.4 million and get lost. Mm -hmm. um, is it too late to be having this discussion? I don't think it's ever too late. You know, I think, um, I think we saw... Uh, reduction in the number of families in the 80s when interest rates went way up. You know, things can change, but we have a lot of work to do. And we have to start making some decisions that are going to be, you know, big ones to make. But I think we can, we can make a difference. And by the way, growing up in Nelson created me. It's okay. It's okay oh, really? <laughs> yeah. It's all right. Yeah, but there you have a weed economy. <laughs> you to do. To pay for everything. You do. No one cares about childcare because everybody's like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Well, now, On that lighter note, that yes. has a suggested revenue source for uh, funding. Yeah, absolutely. There you go. Oh, yeah, I know, but we know that nobody's going to get rich, you know, selling marijuana. I mean, unless you're a gangster. But that's the... But, the taxing. Yeah, yeah. The, the taxes and, and the, the yeah. cost of, well, we, that's the wrong debate today. Yeah. <laughs> Martin. Um, I think we have to continuously have these discussions in relation also to a whole range of other things. We've seen it over and over in history. You, if you don't um, continuously work on keeping your freedom and your liberties and uh, equity, yeah. they, they may get taken away because the, what we, all, we have to understand that there's huge capacity in human species for doing a lot of good but also a lot of evil. And um, so I think when education is an ongoing Topic, and we have to constantly reposition ourselves. What we've seen in the last generation or so is the neo-capitalism that has yep. taken hold of us globally uh, that occupies every niche of our lives. Childhood is also market. So you look at nutrition, entertainment, uh, time of parents, uh, uh, anything, 
uh, everything is looked at through it from a, from a market perspective. And again, there are beautiful examples of how that's not the case and how, yeah. what we can do within the community with self-governance and so forth. But it's something we have to constantly work on because otherwise we may lose it to some other dynamic. It may not even be intentional, but sometimes it is. So I think we have to be mindful of that for all the things that we share some value because otherwise exactly sometimes we wake up and see, oh my gosh, this is now too late. Has somebody right. already taken it away from us? And for some things that maybe has happened. So, so as we get, get a, a little closer to wrapping this up, um, I'd like to end on, on a happy positive note. Um, which is, and, and I'm, I'm serious, each of you give me something, like where is there a glimmer of hope in this? Tell me about something that's, that's working, something that, someplace where you think, yeah, we, this is good and let's do more of it. Well, the glimmer of hope for me is the incredible work that communities, um, that municipalities, that families have put into um, working towards the $10 a day childcare that we now have the political commitment to make it happen. Um, it, without senior levels of government at the table, it can't happen. Everybody's done the best they can. The, the collaboration that's happened across BC and across the country is amazing. Um, but it's that senior level of government that we need and it's now there. Um, and so for me, that is the big glimmer of hope after many years of, of advocacy and hard work it, is to see that and to pressure that into actually happening. All right, Chantal? That's what I was going to say. <laughs> um, just seeing a federal and provincial financial and you know political commitment and will towards something is is pretty amazing. And you know the years I've been doing this and just working with Linnell, who's been doing it longer, um, is is the hope. And we see this in a new government here in British Columbia. You know, I mean. Uh, I see. I'm. I'm twitching your No, eye, I, but, I, yeah. I. I get what you're saying, but but to me, a glimmer of hope would be some commitment to real action mm -hmm. instead of words. Mm -hmm. Do you do you see that? I see it coming. I'm trying to be hopeful here. <laughs> you it's do see it coming yet. for real. Yeah, I do. I, I think so. I think you know to have political will and political action that requires a groundswell of public opinion and support on issues. I mean, public opinion shapes public policy. And so this is an example on a small scale, but we've seen these kinds of things happen mm -hmm. across the province and the country and during the election time on sort of that making that pressure. So, But why aren't the parents of the 17,000 kids who don't have daycare not all here tonight? Mm. Like, that's my, like, why, where is the ground Are any of them here? Of yeah. There you go. <laughs> no, good, good. Yeah, I mean, but why aren't people rioting in the streets over this? Well, they, they ought to be. I mean, we they're ought tired. to be. And, and they're tired. It's, and it's, and it's, a short, it's a short period of time, yeah. right? And then it's over. And then guess what? College comes, right? So, but it's, it's in terms of the expense. <laughs> And that's part of the problem, is that we're such short-term thinkers. We have to be thinking long-term, and we have to be thinking, we talk about sustainability and sustainable development, we have to make a commitment to this plan, right, that it's not going to be about a, you know, a four-year political window, and that is going to be actually critical for us. Martin? I think there's a lot of good things going on. Um, of course, I think professionally we we have to, we, with the things that we're trying to accomplish, we are, we are impatient. Maybe we want to see more progress, uh, 
and we put our fingers into those things which we think could be changed for the better. Um, uh, coming back to one point about why aren't the parents in the streets, I think it's, it's a group that doesn't traditionally has had a strong lobby. That's why the initiative by Paul Kirscher and others, you know, about Gen Squeeze is so important. That's true. Because we have to have a collective voice, not and not just including the parents themselves, but of course others around them, because yeah. uh, as you said earlier, it's, yeah. a, it's a collective we. we. Um, you also see that it's, it's, there is these pendulum swings. So you look at the inequity that's much worse in the United States, and all of a sudden somebody like Bernie Sanders actually has a platform. <laughs> You see the same type of thing happening here. So I don't think it's, uh, even though we focus now on a couple of things that we think could be working out better or could happen quicker, more quickly, we still have to acknowledge that overall it's a very progressive democratic society we live in with a lot of beautiful things going on. But again, I mean, how do we, where are we currently and do we see for the room for improvement and how do we continuously engage at all levels to, to make it happen. So I think, yes, you ask about the government, mm -hmm. um, but the government is a representative of our, so it's hopefully also a two-way right. street. I'm not trying to absolve them for their responsibilities, but of course they react to you know, what society wants and what's safe for them to do and to support. But, but, but how do you convince, and this is a variation of a question that was there and I'll make it the last one, that how, how do you convince the, the staunchest conservative thinker who says, if you want to have kids, they're your responsibility, you raise them. If you can't afford to have kids, don't have kids, they're not my responsibility. I think it was James Moore who said it wasn't his responsibility to feed his neighbor's kid. Um, how do you convince those people who are about, you know, the, the kind of personal responsibility types, the people who, don't worry, I'm taking care of my own, um, that it's good for everybody to do this? You're looking at me? I mean, so, uh, <laughs> uh, I, No, 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 send, just, no, no, send because, them to me. Send because me I guess usually, usually, usually when you ask them, uh, how did they get to where they are? Tell me one single person that grows up without support from others. It doesn't. Yeah. You, you can't do that. Right. So they're they're living in an illusion. So they may they may say that, um, but uh, it's it's there's no reality behind it. Of course, how do you get into their you know into their mindset and change that? That's a hard thing because they've lived in that scope for. They a lot of people think they have done it all themselves. Yes, I'm here because I worked hard. Well, um, you know, I'm not saying they didn't work hard, but uh, we're. We're collective, we're social species, you know, and it's, it's just a matter of creating cognitive dissonance and telling them, you know what, if that's what you're thinking, I'll work a little with you and tell you that that's actually not the case. Mm. All the things we are accomplishing, we're doing as uh, uh, a collective. And whether it's a small group or a larger group, you know, there's nothing you do by, by yourself. So again, send them to me. You know, I'm happy. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just so. But you know, make the argument like just to, in, in a line, each of you, because we all live in our little bubbles. And and I, I have the unfortunate position of being knocked out of my bubble every day on the radio by people who don't agree with me. Um, but but make, make the argument because I hear that on our talkback line all the time and. You know, how do I shut that guy down? Well, I, I think too often what doesn't get a lot of uh, a lot of play is the is the economic argument, and I don't like using like we're only doing this for an economic argument, but it will have a negative impact on our economy if we don't take advantage of the labor pool that we've got. We've got shortages everywhere, and this is one way to address that. And now you slowly are getting more and more economists agreeing with the fact that mm -hmm. 
that $1.5 billion, we will be able to pay that back mm. in health, social costs, and everything else. So that's another way to it's look at the evidence. Yeah, absolutely. And building on research that Linnell and economist Robert Fairholm did was actually found that on full implementation of the, of the $10 a day plan, it would actually bring back $5.8 billion into the British Columbia economy. And so, you know, McKinsey's study came out saying if more women went into the workforce, it would have huge economic gains. So if we're talking to staunch conservatives, you need to speak their language and look at the economics under, underlying the issue and looking at things like labor force shortages and all of these other pieces. I mean, you know, I work for the YWCA and gender equality is our number one goal, but we also understand that not everyone might feel that way. And so we need to also look for the wins and look to have conversations with other people that speak their language as well. And so I think that's a, it's an important piece for us all to do. Mm -hmm. Linnell, for you? Yeah, and I, I think it's an important conversation to have. Um, really important, and, and I look forward to the conversations when, when people ask that question. And then I think there's two points that I bring up, and one is speaking of some of the economic reality a generation ago when they were bringing up their kids. Um, but secondly, and then how, how unaffordable it is across the board now. So when you say, if you can't afford to have children, you shouldn't have them. What kind of a Canada are we talking about? I mean, are we actually prepared to we talk about, is this conversation too late? Well, if we don't keep having not just this conversation, but action like you've been you know, pushing us on, if we don't have action soon, I'm worried that we're not going to be living in a country that actually embraces and welcomes children unless you're in the top 10 or 20 percent of income classes. And is that the kind of country we want to live in? Or is that the kind of province we want to live in? Uh, it isn't the kind I want to live in, and I really don't think it's the kind that person wants to live in either. But that is what they're consigning us to with that kind of approach if we don't have that dialogue and help them understand that, to see the world in a different way right now. I'm going to wrap it there on that really negative note. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, I should have repaid that in the positive. <laughs> Uh, seriously, uh, thank you all so much for your, your questions. There are so many of them tonight, and, and the panelists will hang around uh, for the reception afterward, and you'll have a chance to ask people questions individually. Um, appreciate all of the questions so much. Very thoughtful. Mm -hmm. Thank you all so much for doing this this evening. Mm -hmm.